Welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. Echo is a group of people in Cincinnati, Ohio, who love Jesus, love hanging out, and are navigating the ups and downs of our faith together. We're glad you're here. Good morning, friends. Good to have you here today. I'm, if I haven't got to meet you yet, there's a lot of people visiting with us for the first time today. We're so excited to have you. I'm Kelly Carr. I'm the pastor here. And I have been enjoying a little bit of a summer Sabbath. We have had Summerfest going on here. And we have some amazing folks as part of our church who love God's word and love us and had things on their hearts that they wanted to share in message form this summer. So we kind of just put everybody together and we have a nice little time of some different people on the microphone. And I've enjoyed it because I've had a, I just get to sit and take some things in as well. So let me introduce you to Gary Benton. Gary and Amanda and their four amazing boys have been a part of Echo for a while and they have just, they just jumped right in and started serving. And that is the mark of an amazing person. And so he has been teaching our kids and also jumped right in to teach youth group because he cares and loves teenagers. I have a teenager, so that really had my heart too. But every time I talked to Gary, we just had the most amazing conversations about the Bible. And he always sharpened me and had me thinking. And so I was chatting with him. I was like, Do you, have you preached before? He's like, yeah, I like to preach. I'm like, let's go, let's bring it. So please welcome Gary to the stage and welcome for his message for us today. Good morning, everybody. All right, so who here has heard of Christmas in July? Show of hands, like familiar with that concept, most of us? Cool. So apparently that started as, a, and if you know me, this is like how all my conversations start. So apparently I did research and um, apparently that started as a theme at a summer camp, maybe influenced by a song that had a line about preparing for Christmas in July and some brilliant camp counselor just had the idea Let's, let's do Christmas in July. That'll be our theme. We'll celebrate um, everything we celebrate for Christmas of togetherness and lights and festivities while it's sweltering hot outside. Um, we're going to do something kind of like that today, and except this time it is Easter in July. Um, I have a line here that says, if you haven't noticed, we have Easter coloring pages, but I forgot to tell anybody else about that, so we don't have Easter coloring pages. Um, and if you get to know me, that is also very common. But we're going to do a little out-of-season celebration today, um, which is probably appropriate because Easter is definitely at least like up there in terms of importance uh, to the Christian message. So I feel like it's allowed to get its own week, maybe more than once a year. But we're also going to take uh, a little bit of a different approach, a little, little Easter after dark. We're going to get close, closer to the story. We're going to take an on-the-ground look at this historic occasion. One, because the Bible gives us that look. It gives us those details. So it must have something to say if it's going to spend the time to go into that level of detail. Um, two, because our Easter holiday sometimes has an agenda. It's, it's an American holiday, too. Families coming to church, people who attend church, you know, twice a year for, you know, the, the Christers, which is a terrible word to say. But, uh, you know, Christer, Christmas, Easter, you know, out of a sense of obligation or tradition or culture, they're coming to church. Um, So we assume they want to hear the hits, you know, the lead singles. We might believe that they need to hear those. You know, the real value proposition of Christianity, resurrection, hope, eternal life. Our Easter services are often peaceful, comforting, and overwhelmingly positive. 
So today, freed of those pressures, we get to take a little different approach. So see what else there is to find. Specifically, I want to identify with three difficult experiences the disciples have on Easter. Because on one level, Easter is about hope, it's about life, it's about resurrection. But on another level, sometimes it's about confusion, it's about helplessness, it's even about despair. As you can tell, I'm very popular at cocktail parties. I'm not even invited to cocktail parties. But don't worry, I'm still preaching good news today. It's still good news. Maybe it's just good news to the less savory parts of ourselves. Um, let's pray. I'm going to read a prayer. If you want to pray along, you can. Um, however you want to play that. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. But before we get into the Easter story, we have to ask this quick question. Which Easter story? There's four, after all, seeing as there's four published gospel accounts. And if you were to come to the Bible purely on a fact-finding mission, you might find that frustrating, because the facts are different. Um, up on the screen, I'll put up a chart. This is a quick breakdown, kind of the Cliff Notes version of the four accounts, just some, some facts and some of the reasons behind them that, that scholars and holy men over the centuries have kind of put forward. So feel free to just read that, take that in as I go. I'm not gonna go through it. If you wanna take a closer look, um, you can let me know, I can get it to you later. But anyway, the idea that there's four Easter accounts uh, with different information might feel a little uncomfortable, maybe a little destabilizing, if you're like me. Some of us, like me, grew up in environments that claim that the Bible was the ultimate stay against confusion. It was more clear, more grounding than all that science and philosophy could offer. Basically, it beat the empiricists at their own game. It was a collection of facts that simplified life. And I would claim that most of the time that's simply not the case. Not because the Bible is less true than we hoped, but because it is more complicatedly so. Our two most common categories that we navigate our world with, truth versus lies, fact versus fabrications, fiction versus nonfiction, history or literature. They just, they just fall short here. You can read the Bible as a history book and you'll find it sometimes incredibly messy. You can read it as literature and you might find it stilted or just concerned with seemingly unnecessary detail. And the idea that it's some special blend of both just isn't always very clarifying. So these differences, they exist for literary value mostly. Is one of these more accurate? Well, maybe Luke's, just because he's the most historically minded and he goes into the most detail. Uh, maybe John's, John's has something of a, a clarifying or a correcting effect to Luke's. Um, but they all still have their own different agendas, their theological agenda that they're trying to put forward. And so it's just not really an answerable question. Now one approach we could take if we wanted to make some sense of this would be asking, what do the stories all agree on? What do they have in common? Well, what we have in common, three things. It all started early in the morning, on Sunday, when women came first. It all agrees the women were there first, first came to the tomb, Mary Magdalene plus a couple others, to embalm a dead body, when three, they did not find a dead body, which was very strange because even in pre-modern times, it was not common expectation that dead people would suddenly be alive. Now, maybe it's because I grew up going to Sunday services, but I've always loved Easter for its peacefulness. 
Something about being there before the day really needs to begin, plus taking in all those fresh morning sounds and smells I would have usually either slept through or rushed past, was so magical to me as a child, even though I had like very little idea of anything that was being talked about. And when I read these stories, I still feel some of that, because these two occur early in the morning. So there's this, there's this mystery, nobody knows what's going on, but there's this peace. There's no reason to rush just yet. We're not working against the clock here. So let's get into scripture. Um, I've picked Luke, as I mentioned. It's uh, concerned with some of what I hope to cover today, and it's also the most thorough. Um, we're in Luke 24. We're going to have bits of it on screen. I didn't make the slides very good, so it might be hard to read. If you are a Bible person, feel free to take your Bible out. Just turn to Luke 24. We're going to pretty much go through the whole passage. And I would totally encourage you, if you just want to read it and just skim it over while you listen, feel free. That's your thing. That's great. Um, yeah. So, beyond the three core facts, there's kind of just one exegetical insight, one like literary focus that I would love to draw your attention to today as you read Luke 24. Anytime anyone in this story goes anywhere, they go right back. Nobody ends up anywhere else. Not the women, not the disciples, not the side characters. If someone's standing still when it starts, they're standing still when it ends. If somebody lowers down, they get raised up. If it was like, it's like women, tomb, back. Peter, tomb, back. If you map this out like a chessboard, it's like you're never actually making a move. Everyone is running in circles, baffled by mysterious good news. Emotions are running high in the presence of good news that we don't understand. And also seemingly bad news that we do understand because we get death and Jesus had just died three days ago. We don't get resurrection so easily. Death is loud. Resurrection so far has been very quiet. So they're holding this grief, but it's this calm morning. And there's this sudden good news, but it doesn't make any sense. Not yet. So to whatever degree that you know, critical approach to the Bible, comparing the four accounts, is uncomfortable, which it still is to me, let's sit in that, because I think that's, that mirrors the emotional moment that we find the disciples in. We find these moments sometimes at any point along our faith journey. I relate to them in their confusion. Not just when I try to read and understand the Bible, but all the time when it comes to following God. I just get outmatched. Easter is great, but it's weird. It's destabilizing. If the disciples had any hunch remaining that they still didn't fully get this Jesus they had traveled with for years now, this was proof. Things had happened just as Jesus had predicted. But as we see, nobody had grasped the meaning, and so it still left them confused. Now, there's moments in this passage, in this chapter, and of course, during Jesus' time with his disciples, before all of this, before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, where, where explanations of their meaning as events are actually offered up by Jesus, that it was necessary for God's plan that Jesus offer himself up to die, and that he would rise again. You know, theology has been exchanged. This happens again at length on the famous road to Emmaus in uh, 24 verses 25, where we can go next where two disciples travel unwittingly with Jesus. The scriptures are divided. The logic of the system, we assume, the meaning of these events is worked out in conversation. And then what happens? They go home. Same pattern. It's unbroken. We're still running in circles here. 
And the final event that happens during this time period is Jesus' ascension into heaven. He takes the disciples out to Bethany, and he ascends into the clouds. He, he, he just kind of floats away, really. There's no heavenly light that would indicate, you know, some great thing is happening, a transition or transmogrification, to use a word from Calvin and Hobbes. It's, uh, it's somewhere between, like, a teaching illustration and a ceremony to mark the occasion. The angels testify to this in the passage. What are you guys looking for? What do you think's happening? And then they go back. Enlightened, educated, excited, but as of yet, still with nowhere to go. Now this pattern that I've been calling your attention to is broken at Pentecost. But as they say, that is a story for another day. In fact, it's a story for another month, kind of, because there are 55 days between when Jesus rose from the dead and the church was born on Pentecost. 55 days to sort of walk in circles or to wait. Now bring your own experience to this. When have you had to wait that long? I connect with that time frame because it happens to be the, uh, almost exactly the amount of days we spent in the neonatal ICU with our oldest son, Taryn, when he was suddenly born eight weeks and five pounds early. And we had this big upheaval of our expectations of how our life was gonna go. And then we were given 50 days to basically sit there and contemplate what that was gonna mean. So I know what 50 days can feel like, and it can feel like a very long time. I'm sure many of you do too. Now another reason why that helplessness might have been felt is that when you really understand the question of what Easter answers, you realize there's not just one answer. In fact, there's very many. God is inviting us to help build and represent a model of new creation. That's not one thing. That's infinite variations. What does Easter mean? It means eternal life with God. But it means so very much more. And that sense of possibility and freedom can be dizzying. By the way, there's definitely the out, this attitude out there in the world. I just want to acknowledge it really quick. Christian teaching where we kind of make the emphasis that the only thing that matters about like the whole Bible is that Jesus died and paid the penalty for our sins. And that is true, but to be blunt, that, that approach is unbiblical. Jesus dying on the cross is the definitive resolution of the old world. But in itself, it doesn't actually say anything about the new. It's incredibly important, but it's half the story. Salvation is in the risen Christ, not just because of him. So, if you guys watched TV around the 2010s or something like that, there were these commercials from Mio. Does anyone remember these commercials? Is this just something that I thought was funny back then? There's a picture on the screen that might remind you. It's basically this like concentrated artificial sweetener with food coloring and you like squeeze it into your water. Anyway, I thought they were hilarious. They had these very sort of meme-y commercials that were very colorful. And every time someone took a sip of the water, all the like set design would change and everyone would be wearing different outfits and crazy things would be happening in the background. And there's this tagline where one character would say, oh man, it really changes your water. And the other guy would say, changes everything. Um, it's part of my dumb little self-indulgent imagination. But I can picture that exchange in this scene of Easter. Like, man, Easter really changes your eternal destiny. It changes everything. Easter changes everything. It's a declaration in faith that the labor that God calls us to do is actually the labor that matters into eternity. That our acts of love and kindness and sacrifice and strategic losing that can seem so absurd in the real world really are winning in the long run. 
all the effort that it takes to override our inclination to just provide as much protection, power, or pleasure for ourselves and prefer our relationship with God are worth it because of the resurrection. As St. Paul says, if Christ is not raised, our faith is worthless and we are still in our sins. That's strong stuff. There's no words minced there. If there's no new creation, there's no Christian hope. The reality is, for one thing, so much has changed in one instant. Any attempt to capture it all succinctly in words just falls short. There's so much to process. In, resurrection, in resurrecting Jesus, hear this, God has created a new world inside of the old one, and this new world is about to rapidly expand. It's like the universe at the beginning of the Big Bang, like a little zygote after conception. You can't tell by the, the little cluster of cells you have right now the implications of what this can and will become. You could write a thousand sermons about what Easter means, and all of them could have some new true thing to say. In a certain sense, Easter is present in all of our true preaching. This is even hinted at in the Easter accounts themselves. Matthew and John both make explicit references, at least to the Hebrew minds, to the Garden of Eden. In John, there's literally like a cameo by Jesus himself as the gardener. There's this image of the new creation, of God starting again with a new garden and building another world out from there. And he does this before the old world has ended. Everything that goes against the ways of God, you know, Rome, this great political monstrosity, the religious establishment that hated God when he showed up in human form, our own individual corruption in our hearts, all of that seems to be doing just fine. It's alive and well. But heaven on earth is just starting without them. And it will eventually threaten to take over their hold on everything. And coupled with, you know, the inexpressible complexity of what's happening, this is simply a moment in history where God's plan, like his big P plan of redemption, is at work. The grown-ups, if you will, are talking. The clash of creator and created, you know, this cosmic battle of king and the pretender to the throne, the power of life and the power of death in the form of empire have all come to a head. The success of this part of God's plan in this moment, simply does not rely on his followers' understanding of it, much less their ability to participate. There's just nothing for them to do but take it all in. Let me go to the next slide here. I love doing things with my kids. I have four kids. They're excited. They love doing things with me. There are moments when dad just takes over for a bit. There's moments where I can invite them to participate, knowing that might make things a little messier, but not every moment. And I think Easter is just one of those moments. Like, you know, putting away the dot putting away the knives while I'm doing the dishes or driving the car. They're simply not invited to help me do that. Now, I relate to this passage and that helplessness because I think all of us on our own personal faith journeys intersect with these same moments. You know, some years we're, we're activated, we're participating, we're integrated, you know, we're, we're doing stuff, and we feel like we're on fire for God. And then God shifts things. Suddenly, we're sitting on our hands Maybe we're reprocessing how deeply we've entwined our own identities with our work and our ability to produce. Without anything to do, without a title to hold, or something to show at the end of each day, we're just us. We may be well cared for, but we're helpless. And that can be uncomfortable. And sometimes, I would say the moments in life where we see God doing the most, we feel like we are standing there doing the least. And we don't always like that. So as we 
progress here, I want to revisit that, that thorny question that I brought up earlier about how to approach the Bible, which is one of our central witnesses to the reality of whether or not this resurrection that's so important actually happens. I went to Denver Seminary for the first part of my graduate work, and we had a professor there named Craig Blomberg, and he was our resident expert on all things New Testament scholarship. He literally wrote the textbook that we all read, and he wrote articles, and he did lectures. He was very successful. He was a bit of a local celebrity in our little school culture. Well, he told the story. His, his daughter came to him once. Um, she was in her 20s. She was in the middle of what we would all nowadays probably refer to as deconstruction. She was being exposed, even in this evangelical environment, to all the ways that the Bible was more complicated and even messy than she'd been taught to believe. And she was processing all the ways that the witness of the church had contributed to this misunderstanding, not to mention all the ways we've just straight up failed to live out what the Bible says, both in our teaching of it and in the way we live. And the question, what is true, had become so big it wasn't even really askable in itself anymore. That just was, that couldn't be the question. So she came to her dad, who's you know, the expert on all this, and she, she asked maybe the best question she could ask in the moment. What if this, what if this has to be true? What needs to be true? Because when all this stuff that we build around the Bible, all of what we think we understand about it, how we think we should apply it, when that comes tumbling down, our good news, our worldview, our church culture, our politics, our identities, all of that, is anything going to be left? What has to be true? And you know, he of all people could go into a complicated defense of that. I mean, I could talk your ear off about our latest and greatest theories of theological biography and how the writers of the epistles are like directing a movie based off true events and the relationship to what events are defining and which ones are referential on it, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know me, I can like talk about stuff forever. Um, but Professor Craig gave an answer that I think is, is more true and more wise and helpful in its simplicity and I think more appropriate to the weary soul of his daughter. Not much, not much, some, but not much. And I, that story sticks out to me because it's both hopeful and scary at the same time. Because the answer to, to how much has to be true may very well be the answer to our heart's question of what will be left when everything that is falling down around me in my life has finally fallen. When the dust settles, what will be left? Sometimes? Not much. If your uh, imagination has ever been influenced by the never-ending story, which mine has, and I know my wife's has, there's a, uh, a, a great visual for that, but I can't show it. But that, the nothing closing in and the darkness overshadowing the world, and that moment before the new creation happens can sometimes get very small. And in Easter, so much is falling down around the disciples' understanding, and their world of hope is getting very small, even though it is a, a sure hope. And you can see this in the beginning of Acts, which is actually a quick retelling of the ascension. So Luke wrote Luke and Acts, and so he's already written a little ascension account, and he jumps back into it again, uh, just to kind of signpost some things for where Acts is going to go. Um, so he's back in the ascension, and the disciples ask, Basically, hey, Jesus, is now the time that you do the thing that we thought you were going to come here for? Which is pretty much like restore the sovereignty of Israel and establish us as like a head honcho nation and beat Rome. They didn't get it. They still didn't get it. The smallness of the event, any better than we do most of the time. This beautiful miracle had happened before their eyes. 
But in terms of their worldview, in terms of their certainty, it was still a deconstruction moment. Expectations had not been met. And we preach that Jesus rising with a new resurrected body is one of those moments that must be true. It doesn't matter where the angels were sitting, up, down, side, side, whatever. The realities those details are referencing aren't proved by the details themselves. But the resurrection is the reality itself. It's the judgment on the old world. It's the beginning of the new one. It's the crushing of the serpent's head. It's the declaration that love wins, even when the enemy of love has brought out its biggest guns. The resurrection has to be true because it is the historical event from which all the meaning of our teaching springs. That's why God surrounded it and was careful. That's where you see that historical thing, 500 witnesses and the continuing witness of the Holy Spirit through the church today. Some things have to be true. All of the Christian worldview can be constructed back from the death and resurrection of Jesus. But to build out from that beginning, to start our construction from that stone, sometimes we have to let everything else that's in the way crumble completely. Even in the face of such good news staring us in the face, even in the face of such good news staring us in the face. Wow, who wrote that? Good job. Uh, inviting us into itself. That can feel like despair or desperation. It's not just that they didn't get it. It's that it shattered what they thought they got before. I identify with the professor's daughter in wanting to know everything that happened and what it all means. I want to have everything figured out all the time. That's why we build our worldviews like we do. But I don't get to. And that's still good news. So what do we take away from all this? Hopefully there's some comfort that, you know, good news can find us in an uncomfortable place and still be good news. And we have this big idea that, you know, everything in, in the Christian life is encapsulated in these two events. But, like, what's, like, the next right thing? Like, what do we take from today with this new perspective? How does it help us live a better life with God? There's a famous quote from St. Augustine that I want to kind of play off of. So he's speaking about the right way to live. You know, the, the famous philosophical question, how then shall we live? And his answer, his interpretation of the gospel was, love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. This often gets shortened to love and do whatever you want. And of course mirrors Jesus' own words that the law and the prophets hang on the command to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not, that's not easy to do, but it's simple. Love, do whatever you want. So I, I, I come to you in that same spirit of freedom. Uh, freedom happened to be the subject that Steve talked about last week. Maybe it's all the freedom in the air from July 4th. Love and do what you will. That's such a good guideline for how to go about anything. It's in the core principle of the gospel, moral philosophy. But it doesn't tell you what to do, necessarily. So for that, let me, let me tweak it a little bit. Believe and do what you will. Read the Easter account. Read Luke, read John, read Mark, read Matthew, it doesn't matter. Ask yourself, what would it be like to believe that this happened? What would all that mean? You know, our, our little descent into dogma here that we are going to hold something to be incontrovertibly true doesn't leave us with any less than infinite possibilities of where our life might go from there. There's not any mold that we have to squeeze ourselves into. God still offers us that same opportunity to create alongside him, just like Adam and Eve in that original garden, walking with him, shaping the world with him. Belief is not turning our mind off and going through some prescribed motion. 
I took the approach I took today because I want to highlight that just because Easter is objectively good news doesn't mean it's easy to receive. Confusion, helplessness, despair. If we see these experiences in the lives of people who have walked closely with Jesus for three years, what does that say about us? What should we expect for ourselves? Our, what are about our expectations for our own life of faith? I like the idea that on the most important, the most hopeful day in all of human history, this is how the people closest to the action might have felt. It's not just me. Easter changes everything, but it doesn't do so overnight. It invites us to come and destroy the rest of our idols of meaning and purpose that we've built for ourselves in order to seize the opportunity for new creation. But that's hard. It means giving up on what we might have loved or letting go of what we thought we'd known. It's like a death, but it's also like a new life. So believe and think from there. Let your minds and thoughts be consumed by the hope of resurrection. Believe and then go order your priorities and your vi- reimagine your vision for your life. Believe and let the story of God's self-dying love pierce your heart. Believe and reimagine your neighborhood. Believe and let God's love comfort you because sometimes that belief leads us into scary places. Believe and ask God for wisdom because sometimes that freedom and possibility is scary and we still need somebody alongside of us. Believe and go from there. Amen. But if you want a specific opportunity, if you don't like how open-ended all that is, um, we do see it as part of our role here at Echo to draw your attention to some of the infinite ways the new creation of Jesus is at work in our neighborhood. And uh, as part of our summer of service, we've got some great opportunities here. Um, You can get on your phone and go to that website. We've got a share a need, fill a need thing we're doing where we can uh, kind of reveal to the community ways in which we need help and Members of the community can, can jump in. We've got service cards where you can play little games with yourself or your kids to, to go out and show some love to the neighborhood. So you've got some, if you want a next step, here's a great tangible next step. Uh, we've also got community groups going on which we like to share information about if you feel like the next step is getting into community. Um, let's have a quick pray and then uh, Kelly's gonna come back up. Dear Lord, Jesus, thank you that you are resurrected and that you are alive with us here today and you're present with us by your spirit. Thank you for your good news, and um, thank you for the life of faith that you call each one of us to. Even when that's uncomfortable, there's still good news. Uh, We love you, God, and thank you for watching out for us. Amen. Thank you for the gift of your attention today. If you ever want to join Echo Church in person, we meet on Sundays at 10.30 a.m., You'll find us at 1301 East McMillan Street. That's in the Walnut Hills neighborhood of Cincinnati, Ohio, just up the street from our city's beautiful Eden Park. Find out more about us on our website, echochurch.org. Have a great week.